Well, hey there. Welcome to Just to Be Nominated, a podcast about movies that is distributed by Lee Enterprises. The show is hosted by Bruce Miller, an entertainment reporter for multiple decades who is currently the editor of the Sioux City Journal, Jared McNett, a reporter for the Sioux City Journal, and me, Chris Lay, the podcast operations manager for Lee. For this episode, we hung out with everyone's friendly neighborhood Spider-Man in a spoiler-free fashion. We wandered down Guillermo del Toro's Nightmare Alley, and we put together a top 10 list of our collective favorite movies from the year. At the end of the episode, you'll find a fun interview that Bruce did with Faith Hill and Tim McCraw about their roles on the show 1883, the Yellowstone prequel series. There will be links to all the movies that we talked about in the show notes, along with our social media info, etc. So you can see what we're up to and or contact us if you want to sound off in our DMs. If you like the show, you should tell your movie-loving pals and let us know what you think in the review section of the show wherever you get your podcasts. Now, here it is. Our show kicks off after this short pause. So Bruce Miller and Jared McNett are here. Howdy, howdy, hey. That is Jared. Jared sounded like he was in a car, didn't he? Sounded like he was Cab Calloway, actually, but... I'm a car guy now. I just like to drive around and do Facebook Lives from the front seat of my car and just, you know, kind of offer my musings on on life. Of course. So Bruce Miller and Jared are both in Sioux City. Uh, I am Chris Lay in Madison. We're getting down to the big Christmas week. This is a week when people actually go to the theater. Yeah, because they have uh, tuned out from work and haven't quite maybe you know, scheduled flights to, you know, with family or haven't, uh, haven't, you know, hit the, the tarmacs yet to go home. They aren't sick of having the relatives around the house. So they don't say, well, what are we going to do? Are we going to play a game? No, let's go to the movies. I'll get you out of the house. Exactly. So mom sends them out of the house and there they are. Yep. Those divorced dads get to take their kids. You know how it is. So the movies that folks could be coming out to go see this weekend We've got Nightmare Alley, which I know, Bruce, you've seen. Yeah. But I want to know about Spider-Man. Have you been to Spider-Man? I saw Spider-Man yesterday. All right. Let's, let's cut all the other crap. Let's just get straight to Spider-Man because I have to know all the secrets. I'm not going to tell you any of the secrets. Come on. I'm not going to. I'm going to say... No, I, I saw what the, the Marvel nerds did to Variety. I, I, don't, want, I don't want any... I don't want any heat. Yeah, right. There are a handful of moments that have been teased and rumored that happen. Well, we've seen in the trailer, the trailer has a bunch of, you'll see some like Doc Akas in there, right? Yeah. And what's Jake Gyllenhaal's guy? Jake Gyllenhaal's guy is Mysterio. Okay. Outside of the, the people that are in the trailer, I won't confirm or deny. Yeah. Any of that stuff. People that are going to go see it, the, the experience of seeing that stuff happen is, is pretty good. And I will say, the only real fault that I'm going to give this movie, or the most clear problem that I had with it, is just that the, the moments where, where folks do show up and, and you get that moment, it gets milked. You know, the audience kind of gasps. <laughs> when, and the audience in the screening that I was at definitely, you know, clapped or whatever. And the movie kind of has a, you know, hold for applause moment that is is part of it. So the trailer presents one film and this movie, the finished product is a lot more than that. There are a lot more moving parts. It gets very dynamic very quickly. It introduces, you know, definitely a lot more people that aren't in the trailer and lays a lot of track for the future of Spider-Man and how it's going to tie into all the movies that are coming out down the line, specifically Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness. And what comic is it kind of riffing on? From the mid-aughts, there was a, a, a run of uh, comics in Amazing Spider-Man called One More Day. And it's sort of like that. And the, the comics were very divisive amongst the, the fan base. But again, it gets a lot more interesting in the way that it brings all of the, the threads together. And 
humanizes some people and doesn't otherwise. I mean, it's a, there's real stakes in it. The big, you know, Marvel set piece at the end, which all Marvel movies have to have seems valid in a lot of ways. There's tons of Easter eggs for folks to, to get into. I had a really great time with it. The audience that I was with, uh, with it being, you know, the night before opening official opening day, they were all diehards. It's a, it's dense, but it also seems like it is from my experience reading Marvel comics, it is the, the closest to the weirdness that the comics, as far as jumbling chronologies and resetting timelines. How much into the spider verse is it? You know how that jumped around and had a lot of different things. Is that what this is like? Yes and no. It is a perfect blend between those two things in the sense that it introduces a whole lot of characters and incorporates them into the plot and the action in a way that feels natural. But it also has a very specific, you know, Marvel cinema, uh, you know, beat to it in that it's pulling all from the established Spider-Man movies. Whereas Into the Spider-Verse pretty much was just Into the Spider-Verse. And it was introducing those characters pretty much from scratch. There is no cinema basis for... Peter Porker, the spider ham, <laughs> or, you know, Spider-Man noir pre into the Spider-Verse. So it's, it has a lot of that and it's doing a lot of the same technical things as far as plot goes and character development and introducing all of that. If this is your, your first Spider-Man film, will you be lost? That is a good question. And I don't know how to answer it. There's about half of it that might not be as appreciated maybe but i don't think that you necessarily need all of it to really appreciate it but i don't know it's also the i mean the folks that are going to go see this movie is a pretty self-selecting bunch we're talking about these franchises that at this point i mean the, the spider-man movies are up there in top box office for marvel cinematic universe so most people have some baseline experience to operate on. I have a difficult time imagining a significant percent of the, the audience coming to see this have missed out on the other Spider-Man movies. It is pretty funny that in a lot of ways, the only reason this movie came together like it did with the other Spider-Mans that pop up in it is because Sony just completely mismanaged the Spider-Man franchise for as many years as it did. Had those bungles not happened, this movie probably wouldn't even exist in the, the shape and form that it does. Yeah. Sony has had a lot of problems with the Spider-Man franchise in general, with restarting it, getting the tone wrong. And I mean, early on, they were trying to set up this pretty dense Spider-Man rogues gallery that they could keep coming back to before the Marvel Universe really established the infrastructure. That, that you would need to, to make something like that scalable. And Sony is one of the few companies that actually licensed this stuff that hung onto it. Disney just bought Fox. So they now have the X-Men stuff. And I mean, this is real inside baseball for, I don't know, IP, <laughs> intellectual property nerds, of which I guess I'm one. For the regular guy that's going to this, how many during the credit sequences are there? Two. So once they've seen the second one, I can go. Yes. You don't have to say, you can just go home and read it on Wikipedia. Right. And then watch it the next day online, right? Yeah. What about Tom Holland? Is the door shut for him? Or would he possibly make another appearance down the road? I think that he, he will make another appearance down the road. If they can theoretically bring back, you know, characters from previous Spider-Man movies, then he's not out from under the... <laughs> <laughs> the grasp for me my two favorites from all of the spider-man movies have still probably been the first and the second one that uh sam raimi did so i'm wondering chris if you would put uh this one above either of the uh first two sam raimi ones you like those no i love those those i mean i part of it part of it, a little bit of it is nostalgic because i saw the first one when i was like 12 or whatever but i think those first two hold up pretty well but you know what I hate about Spider-Man? And I, Spider-Man is my favorite of those kinds of characters. 
is that they always feel this stupid need to go back to the beginning and start from how he got this. I don't care. I've seen that enough. Same with Batman and dying uh, parents. I don't need that either. I think you should, if you're going to bring in a new Spider-Man, which is quite possible, I'm sure, start from as if that just ended and we're, we're picking up. We don't need to have this person get suddenly bitten by a spider and then, oh God, here it goes. But I think that's where these have gone wrong. It's the same way with the one I hate the most is the Hulk. I think the Hulk is the stupidest superhero film of them all because they insist on giving you that origins thing every time out and I don't need it. To speak to a couple of the points that you just raised, which I think are super valid. The best thing about Spider-Man Homecoming and bringing the new Spider-Man into the Marvel Cinematic Universe, the modern iteration of that, is that they, they leapfrogged over that origin story. You don't really get a lot of that because you don't need it. This movie touches on that in a, in a way that feels right. It feels like the kind of thing that if you, you don't need to front load any Spider-Man movie with the idea that, you know, Aunt May's there and Uncle Ben dies and it creates this responsibility and, you know, you get that line and it approached it pretty cleanly, which was the, the best thing about it. You just kind of, Spider-Man's there and he's Tom Holland and it's good. It just works. There's a reason why the Hulk has just been in Avengers movies for the most part after that. There hasn't really been a standalone Hulk movie since. Edward Norton, but yeah. Yeah, I think that uh, that's that, that's going to be the last Hulk movie for a while. It seems like the the Edward Norton one is still Marvel canon, but they don't reference it at all. I don't feel like it's not in the. <laughs> the it's sort of the nope. the black sheep of the the MCU. Good because I hate it. Me too. It's not great. I have one more question for you about the Spider Man uh, No Way Home. Yeah, how's Alfred Molina? He's fantastic. Good to know. The the rogues gallery that is in there is, is great. It's no secret that the Green Goblin's in there and his performance is really, really great. <laughs> Excellent work all around from those guys. It feels like it is the, the best distillation of everything that it needed to be right now. And it's a little bit frustrating to me that Marvel movies you have to talk about them in this much larger context. Like none of these movies stand alone. And the ones that do are the best ones, I think. And this is a really good movie, but it's, it has that caveat of playing within that sandbox of Marvel, of pulling from the comics, of now pulling from multiple film franchises that came before, layering all that in. I think the question that I left wondering and the question that you asked Bruce was can someone just go into this off the street not knowing anything and have it make sense in the same way that they could with like Rocky Four, you know and and just kind of get it and to a certain degree you can rely on the iconography of Spider-Man and the certain just collective unconsciousness awareness of Marvel's Spider-Man but I don't know I mean and it's it's working out for them but these are very unique animals, I think, and should be treated as such in a way. You know, when you have multiple TV shows that you're going to have to watch to kind of get all the nuts and bolts of, you know, what's going on in this to get all of the threads. Is that still cinema? I mean, it's, it's storytelling in, in a visual medium, but it's this very corporatized and not in a bad way, but in the way that it, it functions. I had a great time, but I'm a huge nerd for this stuff. So it's like the old serials of the days when people were just coming to the movies and then you, every week you saw a new installment, they're just taking that to a different extreme. I think so. Yeah. So now Dr. Strange, does he wind up in 1925 on a ranch say, and uh, the wife of his brother comes with a son and does he kind of start creeping out the kid? Does that happen with Dr. Strange? If only, if only. <laughs> Isn't the kid's name in the power of the dog also Peter? I believe it is. <laughs> yes. You see, 
we're tying things together. And I mean, the Peter Parker mythology is loaded with him searching for father figures. Right. Can he make a rope? If he can make a rope and find out where the anthrax is, times are good. I mean, it depends. If it's uh, Andrew Garfield Spider-Man or Tom Holland Spider-Man, he can make a rope with web shooters that he's created. Or if he is Tobey Maguire Spider-Man, it's going to come right out of his body. We are, of course, referencing Power of the Dog, which is on Netflix. And at this point, anyone who has access to that, which is probably most people should have given that a shot because that is certainly going to be in the, in the running for Best Picture, front running, in fact. I, th- I think it's slipped a little. I agree. I think it's still going to be nominated. I think that's... Oh, yeah, it's one of the... Because they have 10 this year. 10, that's easy to fill. I could even pull a few from my back pocket and we could put them in for the 10. Because uh, there, in, a, in a given year, I think it's harder to find five that you can eliminate something than it is to have 10 and you let some kind of marginal ones in the tent. So... I don't, you know, it's a really, now with all these critics uh, nominations and things coming out, I really doubt that we're going to see uh, a surprise in the Oscar nominations for 10. Uh, Jared, I'm sorry, but Pig is not getting in there, even though it did oh. get, it got a nomination from one of the critics things. And I thought, well, that's good, but it hasn't, it doesn't have traction and you need to have that traction beyond the, the first week or so. It didn't even really get anything major at the, uh, independent spirit awards that was just like an 824 fest uh up and down the, i uh, was the surprised ballet. though that you know you raved about nicholas cage and nicholas cage isn't nominated anymore yeah and, and to me that would have been like just a smart move for them to do just to get some publicity if nothing else but eh, whatever so i the idea that we're going to see some of these things show up in the oscars no not going to happen um, at best, it's going to be a foreign film that'll come in there and it'll have a little life, but we're not going to see Pig. So sorry, kids. Mass is another one that kind of seems to be shoved under the rug now. They were talking before about how the, the cast, all of them should be nominated. Well, one of those groups just named them as kind of a best ensemble and called it good and then nominated them for nothing else. So is that really the best way to deal with indie people and you know have you seen my red rocket yet it's not out here yet oh th- that's a shame because simon rex really does stuff in that movie that should have gotten attention on a larger scale and it'll just disappear i agree it seems like something that is going to either have a long tail to it or i mean part of it is just there isn't the the art house infrastructure that there was you know 20 years ago or even 10 years ago for something like that to come out really broadly and yeah it's not it's not here in in madison um it seems like it's pretty much only screening on the coast at this point or in in your living room bruce <laughs> so in my house you can come to my house you can see there but you know I, I look at some of that stuff and when i'm looking at these lists they look at something like belfast as their kind of tip of the hat to an independent film and they're going gaga over all of these actors. And you think, well, Jamie Dorman was good for Jamie Dornan, but I don't think he is necessarily one who has to be in the mix of five for best supporting actor. You know, it's it just, it doesn't make sense. But they're they're looking at that kind of stuff. Going, Look at, you see our indie cred here? We are so good. We've got Jamie Dornan in there and you didn't think he would get in there and look how good we are. And that's like, yeah. No, no, they need to mix it up more. I like the old days when you see somebody like Carol Kane in there and you go, what in the hell is Carol Kane doing in here for best actress? You know, and that's what they're missing. I think it gets way too political. And then to be the indie darling, you've got to have a big studio or somebody putting a campaign on behind you. Yeah. So no pig, but someone who's won some Oscars previously, Guillermo del Toro has a movie coming out you know, that's another one that the acting is not going to get any attention, although there are really good supporting performances in that. I didn't even recognize Richard Jenkins in the thing. I thought, wait a minute, who, what, what is this? This is weird. We're speaking about Nightmare Alley, which is an update of a kind of pulpy noir film from the late 40s, early 50s, I think. It's uh, on Criterion now. Have you seen the original, Bruce? I have not seen the original, no. 
It was started with, a, there was a book too. So you never know what they're pulling from. But what happens is this guy goes to, to a carnival, is kind of enamored with the, the barker, the carnival barker, Willem Dafoe. He's interested in some of the acts that are there. And then he meets this woman who is able to read minds, played by Tony Collette. And he becomes kind of her protege, if you will. And she teaches him the secrets of being able to do people who are in the, in the audience. And then he takes that and becomes much bigger than she is by doing this kind of David Copperfield kind of mentalist act all around the country. And the woman who was like the electrified girl who takes all these shocks through her becomes his girlfriend slash partner in this whole process. And then they hit up against a woman who is a psychoanalyst played by Kate Blanchett, who becomes a little jealous of the idea that he might be stealing her audience and her shtick. And so there's this whole kind of what's going on here situation. And the ending is marvelous, marvelous. The cast for it is pretty ridiculous. And like, I mean, honestly, the first time I saw the trailer for it, I was sold on that. So I'm definitely going to go and see that one this weekend. I know a lot of people made fun of it because it was the the movie where a lady has sex with a fish, but I really liked uh, The Shape of Water a lot. And I like Guillermo del Toro in, in general. And so I'm pretty excited to see this one. It creates a great mood. Yeah. You know, you get in it and you feel the atmosphere and you feel like you're in that world. You feel like you're walking around the carnival. You feel like you're in those kind of um, palatial homes that he visits when he becomes, you know, a little bigger act. And you sense his fear. You sense that he's going to be found out any minute. You sense that there's something there that you can participate in. So I love I loved that concept. Now, Kate Blanchett, she's had a year. And if she had played Lucy in Being the Ricardos, this would have been her year to win something because that's a trifecta. When you've got Being the Ricardos, Nightmare Alley, and you've got Don't Look Up, that you can't beat that kind of a trio. But she gave up the Lucy part to um, Paul Kidman. And yeah, so she's got these two. And neither one is strong enough, I think, to, to actually get a nomination for anything. But she's good. I love her. You know, and she comes off as one of those cold, kind of bitchy people. And in person, she is so fun. She is so fun. And she can make jokes better than anybody. And I love that about her because none of her characters seem like that. They all seem like people that you'd, oh my God, I got to steer clear of her. Except for uh, her take on uh, Bob Dylan and uh, I'm not here. Her version of Bob Dylan in that movie is probably the most fun of any of the six Bob Dylans that there are in that movie. But notice how she takes risks. Yep. Boy, she takes risks. And the idea that she would play Catherine Hepburn, come on. The last person you want to play is Catherine Hepburn. She did it and she won an Oscar. Yeah, you'll both like this film. It's not one that you go, hmm, let me think. No, I think it's one of those fun ones that just go. Go see it. You'll be wrapped up in the world that it has to offer. And the ending, when you see the ending, let me know what you think. Because it's like, ah, of course. There is a movie about um, family that's coming out next week in theaters that I'm that I'm very excited for. That's also a, a blockbuster movie. Is it Sing Two? <laughs> yes, it is. I'm very much looking forward to that. <laughs> no, it's uh, the new Matrix movie, which actually has been getting uh, pretty good reviews from more than a few critics, at least that I follow online and stuff. Um, so it's got me even more excited than I already was to go uh, back to the Matrix, as they say in the trailer. The new trailer looks great. I am increasingly excited, and it seems like, again, very similar to the Spider-Man stuff, where they are addressing and roping in all of the, the dense mythology that came before. That's what I tap out on. I really don't look like I'm interested because it's been too long. If you're doing sequels, I think you really have to do like Lord of the Rings film them all at once and release them with a, some kind of regularity. When you wait, how many years has it been since the last one? 15? Yeah, something like that. That's way too long. You were a different person back then. And for you to try and bring it all back together and what was this now? Hmm, let me think. 
the Matrix Resurrections gets to ask the very uh, philosophical question of what if you had a uh, big budget action movie with a, a silver fox and a cougar as the uh, the leads of your big budget action movie, two fifty somethings who have uh, aged quite well. <laughs> one of whom is still profoundly bankable. Yeah, and the one you thought wouldn't be. Whoa. You know, really, you didn't, hasn't Keanu always seemed like he had a shelf life? He looked like he was going to be done by 30. And he has carried on better than most actors. And I think because he really does care about the work. I know that sounds really strange to say about Keanu Reeves, but he, he seems like he chooses, not necessarily because it's going to be an advantageous move for him, but because he thinks it's within his, his wheelhouse. He can do it. He also seems like someone who ultimately also is a, a good person on set. I know the, the John Wick series of films, basically, I mean, it's, it's directed by Craig Stahelski, who was his stunt double for many years and stunt coordinator. So, I mean, Keanu seems like the kind of guy who knows the, the first name of the craft services dude. He gives them all watches. Yeah. I would like to work with him. I could use a new watch. <laughs> Keanu, I'm here for you. I got your back, man. Can I throw one in before you move on to the next? I've had people come up to me and say, well, it looks like West Side Story is a real bomb. I have not seen that at all. But people, because it didn't make how many millions in the first week, suddenly start classifying it as something less than. It is not. It is like one of the best things you will see all year. And the idea that it is unsuccessful in any way artistically is just totally wrong. And I would hope that if you have somebody around you says, oh, I didn't make enough money the first week, you rethink that because this one should be seen. I think it's really good. It's the kind of movie that I think people are gonna go see with their family over the holidays. I've been confused by the narrative that, that you're talking about of people saying it's a bomb when it's, it's a Spielberg movie. That's a great film that has tremendous word of mouth that, I mean, theaters aren't gonna take it off for quite some time. It's only going to build momentum in a good way. Again, we are so far away from the Oscars. I think there are people in that film who will be talked about as best supporting actor and actress nominees. And you're not on these lists again. You're not, you're seeing Ariana DeBose. She's been nominated. And I think Rita Moreno gets a little attention. But Mike Feist is the one that you watch. This one is going to build. He is going to be your man in the top five for best supporting actor. He's wonderful in that role, and they're not getting enough attention for him, but it'll build. And I bet you money he's in the final five. Well, speaking of final fives, we can kind of go a little round robin and talk about our top five films of the year. I can get the ball rolling. So my uh, first one, so I guess five, if we're doing like a counting down kind of thing, is uh, one of two movies that uh, Ridley Scott did this year, and it's uh, The Last Duel, which has Ben Affleck. Matt Damon, uh, Jodie Comer, and uh, Adam Driver, and is just delightful. The subject matter is not delightful, but it's delightful to see uh, Ridley Scott going back to, you know, like an epic type of movie, which he hasn't done, I guess, what, since uh, The Last Kingdom, maybe, I think was the last one of like those kind of like sword and sandal like type of movies. Um, And basically, the Last Duel is like a Rashomon type movie where there's these competing narratives that you kind of have to sift through and figure out who is telling the truth. And like having those different vantage points really uh, makes the movie something special. And I enjoyed it quite a bit. It was one of my favorite uh, theater going experiences of the year, especially for the final fight in the movie, which is very long and very brutal. It's superb. Yeah, that was on my list as well. And I don't have anything to really add other than people need to see this movie it is it's a shame that it didn't receive the recognition that it should have when it came out and yeah go see this movie it's truly fantastic and yeah so that's that, that's on my list as well bruce what have you got okay i i will throw a tick tick boom because we had a lot of uh, musicals this year but I really appreciated it because it gave me some background that I was looking for about Jonathan Larson. I thought that um, Andrew Garfield was just incredible. And I do think he will be one of the top three for best actor. I'm not sure he'll win, but I think he'll be in there. And 
I love the idea that Lin-Manuel Miranda was able to tell somebody else's story without referencing his own story. And I like that. And I think, I think that's one that belongs in the top 10. I don't know that it's in the top three, but it definitely is on my list. Fantastic. The pick that I've got that I'm going to throw out that I fairly certain is not going to be anywhere near either of your lists. I'm going to say Bad Trip, the Eric Andre film, kind of jackass style public stunts. That was on my halfway through the year list. So I appreciate you picking up the torch and carrying it to the finish line. Absolutely. I recently rewatched it and it absolutely holds up. It takes all of the tropes of a road trip buddy comedy and then adds this layer of jackass style public stunts, but in a way that is wholesome. I mean, it is, it, it is the most wholesome prank movie, gross out thing that I've ever seen. To that point, it has a musical number in it that is genuinely sweet and like, almost as good of a musical number as some of the stuff in West Side Story. I say almost. There's a little bit of difference. It's so catchy and just a great moment in that incredibly gross and like hysterical movie. Bad Trip is number two on the list of movies that came out this year that had musical numbers involving somebody named Maria. So <laughs> not a family film, not for everybody, obviously, but it is an example of, of the format being executed on, on a really high level. And that's why it's on my list. It's fantastic. I agree wholeheartedly with you. And I will keep the, the train rolling of a uh, bluer type of movies. And my number four pick is uh, a movie that a, a horror uh, maestro did earlier this year. And that's James Wan's Malignant. Which the reason I love the movie, and I think I talked about uh, this when we talked about it when it came out, is that it just is completely bonkers in the later parts of the movie in a way that I didn't see in any other movie, horror or otherwise, from the entire year. But once it commits to like intentionally going off the rails, it fully commits to it. And I love to see any type of movie do that, but especially a horror movie. Um, it's got some nice, like, uh, Italian horror vibes to it too, but at the end of the day, what sells it is how nuts it gets in the later parts of the movie. Bruce? Oh boy, French Dispatch. I think that deserves to be on the list because you know what? You kept watching it and you didn't know what was going to happen next. Most films, you kind of know when it's wrapping up, you know when you can go to the bathroom, you know when you can do whatever, get the coat on, you know, that kind of stuff. With this, right up until the last minute, you weren't sure what it was going to do. And I thought it was so creative, so, so wonderful in many ways. And, you know, we have several that kind of fall in that pot. Like, Don't Look Up could be considered one like that. But I think French Dispatch just wins on so many levels. My take on it is that it is, it is not the best Wes Anderson movie, but it is the most Wes Anderson movie. And that's good. Yeah. He's another one of those ones that they will see as he's our indie man. You know, and um, y'all, we're really, congratulations. You did a great job for picking that indie director. And he's so mainstream now that you you know what his type is. Bruce, if anyone uh, in the movie, would you say that Jeffrey Wright maybe has the best chance of getting nominated for anything? Because his part in that movie was really strong. Yeah, he was good. I just worry that, uh, again, it's too many people. And they'll just, they're not going to push any one of them. So as a result, you get Belfast with two nominees in one category. And really, I don't know. I love Tilda Swinton in this. I thought she was fun where she's like doing that little, that little shtick about the telling the story. And that's not enough to win anything, but it could be, you know, we might see it as a SAG nominee for best ensemble. It could be a real a real big thing there. And that would be how Jeffrey could win. But he's one of those secret weapons. You know, they they have go-to ones all the time. Like you'll see Morgan Freeman is always kind of like, oh, we'll get Morgan Freeman or we'll get Samuel L. Jackson. But Jeffrey Wright, you're going to get a different character every time out. He's that good. And I think he just goes under the radar for many of them. Yeah. The one that I'm going to throw out, also not sure if this is on anyone else's list, but it's Titane, which is certainly 
build as a, a movie about a woman who has sex with a car, but similar to Bad Trip, it does so much more with the weird hand that it deals itself. And conceptually, it's, it's a fantastic film. It starts off so bizarrely, and then the bizarreness hits this other gear that is humane and sad and relatable in a, in a strange way. But I don't know. It's, I mean, yeah. That's from the same director who did a, a horror movie a couple of years ago called uh, Raw, which is really fantastic about a, uh, like a uh, college student who develops a taste for uh, humans. Mm-hmm. And it won the uh, Palme d'Or earlier this year. Yep. And uh, Tatane is officially going to be the Oscar nominee for international films from France. So we will hear more about that. You mentioned the Cannes Film Festival. Notice how Annette has just disappeared. Yeah. That thing is just like nowhere. And it was like really the talk, like, oh my God, there's a puppet in this thing. And they're nutty. And that thing has laid an egg. It's difficult because that's one, it was on my short list, but it didn't make my, my final list. And it's somehow even, even harder to wrap your head around as a, you know, maybe a casual film goer. But it's a great film. It's just, it got lost in the shuffle. I could see it developing more of a cult following in the, in the coming years. It's one of those ones that when you see Adam Driver and another one, you go, say, what was the deal with that Annette? What were you trying to do with that thing? Here for my guy, Adam Driver. Yeah, justice for Annette, but <laughs> not from my list. So yeah, Tatane, that's mine. Okay. Jared? What's next? So the next one that I will go ahead and uh, throw out the uh, Card Counter, the latest movie that uh, Paul Schrader, who's probably most well-known to folks for uh, writing the screenplays for Taxi Driver and Raging Bull. And then uh, before the Card Counter, he directed First Reform with Ethan Hawke a couple years ago. Back in the day, he also directed uh, American Gigolo with Richard Gere. This movie is kind of a riff on something that Paul Schrader has been doing for a long time, which is a uh, what he calls God's Loneliest Man. And in this case, God's Loneliest Man uh, is Oscar Isaac, who basically just seems to be intentionally putting himself in purgatory by just going from like sad, decrepit Midwestern casino to sad, decrepit Midwestern casino throughout the movie as a sort of punishment for the time that he spent in the military where he worked at a uh, basically a torture facility during the um, Iraq war. Uh, it's really intense, but like a, a lot of other Paul Schrader movies, there's some really profound, kind of beautiful, spiritual movie making in there too. And that's what I appreciated most about it. And I also appreciated getting to see uh, Tiffany Haddish in a dramatic world that she absolutely nails. So those were the things that I loved so much about it and made it one of my favorites from this year. Between her in in that and, and her work in Bad Trip, I mean, she really bookended 2021 with some with some range. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Bruce. I think you got one left. One, you know, and boy, it's hard because I saw the tragedy of Macbeth. Ooh. And I'll tell you, uh, that is such a niche. That thing is not going to get the attention that you think it will. Okay. Even coming out late in the game. It's very much. And again, black and white. How many black and white films have we had this year? A lot. And I haven't seen The Lost Daughter, but I have that. And I think that could be a, a contender. I did see Parallel Moms. It's good in terms of Penelope Cruz, but I don't know if it goes beyond that. I can't get over how people are just going wild over CODA because I think it's a very regular kind of film. I don't think it's anything out of the ordinary. I thought The Sound of Metal was a better kind of journey than this thing. But it, it's going to be in there and you're going to see people nominated from that. But okay, I'm going to pick just, I'm going to go straight. I'm, what the hell? It'll be on the list. King Richard. Is even though we're going to forget it, it'll get in there. Will Smith will be nominated because Will is a, a real salesman. But Ingenue Ellis is the one that needs to be nominated. And I would love to see her win. 
I would really, I think that would be the kind of ultimate justice is that you build this film all around one star, but you have another star who's actually better and deserves the attention that comes from this. And I think it's like the Williams girls, you know, when they were growing up, all the attention went to Venus, but mom taught Serena. And Serena is the greatest ever in tennis. And so I, I, it'd be a, a great story. It would be a great story to tell. And I think that she just steals that movie and you wouldn't think she would. It's the old uh, Fred Astaire, Ginger Roger thing. Right. You know, Ginger Rogers has to do it backwards and in heels. Right, right. And I'm not saying anything against Will Smith because I think Will does a nice job. But I, I do think that, you know, here's the surprise is that the woman who plays his wife which you automatically think, oh, that's just kind of a throwaway part, manages to, um, to really make a statement with it. And I think she's great. So King Richard, because of her. The last one that I have that hasn't been talked about yet, surprisingly, I would have thought that Bruce, you would have gone with this, but West Side Story. Oh, it, it's on my list. But again, I'm, it's, I'm down to like about 20 and I'm trying to whittle it down so it's like one of those things where it'll be on there. Sure. I am now kind of toying with the idea, would it be best picture, the number one film? Part of me says it will be, but then you have that, well, but it's, I can improve on anybody else's work, kind of a concept. You know, is that a, too much of a hurdle? It would be a great story for the Academy to tell that. And I think uh, the studios want it because then they can remake a whole bunch of things and say, well, look, Spielberg did it with this. Let's remake these films because we can do it without paying too much money. It could win. It'll definitely be nominated, definitely be nominated for Best Picture. And it's marvelous. It moves like a house on fire. Well, let's start with my number uh, two pick. And I don't want to belabor it too much because we talked about it last week and you made a pretty good case for it again and I think it seems like it, we talked about it last week it does have a pretty good chance of not only getting nominated for best picture but also maybe having the most nominations for any movie this year so that'll be interesting to see how that plays out I should say before I have my number one it's one of the ones I haven't seen from this year I still haven't seen licorice pizza because no one has if you don't live on the coast or have screeners I haven't seen nightmare alley I didn't get around to seeing spencer uh, humans tick tick boom Heart of the Fall, Red Rocket, Belfast, No Sudden Move, Detain, or Power of the Dog yet. So with all of those caveats, my uh, number one pick for the year is still Pig. I rewatched it over uh, Thanksgiving when uh, my girlfriend came up to visit. She enjoyed it uh, a whole lot, and I loved it as much as I did the first time I saw it in the theaters. I think it's the best acting work that Nicolas Cage has done and he's on quite a hot streak right now and I think it's going to continue next year uh just from seeing the trailer of uh the new movie he's in where he plays himself that's going to be a lot of fun but I I think the work that he does in Pig is really moving it's a really special performance from him and it's my favorite movie of the year and that that's now two out of the last several years where my favorite movie at the end of the year like all seriousness was a Nicolas Cage movie because a couple years ago it was Mandy. Now this year it's Pig. I got to see that Pig film. It's pretty good. Yes, it is. It was on my list, but I cut it partly because I knew that Jared was going to have it out there. So we would end up talking about <laughs> it. I did not expect it would necessarily be his number one, but it's a tremendous film. Do you have a big Nicolas Cage subsection in your movie uh, collection i'm starting to i i really am yeah he's never been on my list of like oh i gotta see the next nicholas cage film so Pig might do it for me he is for me now because i do think especially in the last few years the choices he's, obviously he's still doing a bunch of movies where he's just in them and you know it's whatever but like he's picking a lot more really phenomenal movies to be in now great I do have it. I have not seen it. I have a bag that came from being the Ricardos. That's a huge kind of like shopping bag. And I have all the screeners in there that I need to see. So you see why I'm hedging bets. I have the same 
you know, caveat list as, as Jared, where the number of films that I haven't seen yet, partly because they haven't been released or made available to me is, you know, frustrating. Well, and the thing is with this stuff is always like, even my list of stuff I haven't seen, I'm sure I left out stuff from that one. In fact, I know I left out stuff from that, that of stuff I haven't seen. So that's just that's the way it is. But I, I've seen more than enough that I feel pretty confident with my list. Before we close out, Bruce, do you want to give a tease on the interview that we've got? Oh, sure. This week, um, I talked with Tim McGraw and Faith Hill, who are in 1883, which is a um, prequel to Yellowstone on television. And they are both kind of feeling their way through the, the business. Tim says that he never really considered himself an actor. And now he figures because he's in the hands of Taylor Sheridan, he said, I, this could be, you know, the next big step. But you'll get to hear from both of them what it's like to work together, what it's like to be on a Western, which sounds just dreadful, to be honest. I don't know that I could do it. And you'll get a shot at what that Taylor Sheridan world is like, because he is just really rocking it in television these days. And I think that he's one that we will look at and say, oh, my God, remember back when he was doing those things? This is a good example, because this isn't like Yellowstone. Yellowstone reminds me of Dallas. It's very lurid, whereas this is a little slower paced and it really drinks in the, the atmosphere and you get a chance to feel what it's like to be actually going to the West. And it's funny too. It's funny in many places. Tim McGraw might not think of himself as uh, an actor, but he was really good in Friday Night Lights. Right. I know that was however many years ago now, but he is fantastic in that. And I would think, you know, he says, I don't make as much money doing this show as I would doing concerts, but I think he's looking at the long game and what would happen in the future. And he's a good actor. I really do think he's a good actor. Well, yeah, so we will have the audio from that interview uh, plugged in after this announcement from Jared. Next week being uh, Matrix Week, I'm officially proclaiming it, that I'm gonna go ahead and tell people to take the uh, good movies pill and see something good at the box office. Fantastic. And now here is the interview that Bruce did recently with Faith Hill and Tim McGraw. Tim, does this inspire you in your music career at all? Does it make you want to write a song because you were inspired by something? And what does it mean to be handsy in 1883? Handsy? Handsy. You talk to the, the guy that's uh, going to date your daughter and you said, oh, don't. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I've got three daughters, so I've gone down that road quite a few times. <laughs> yeah. And handsy in 1883 means anything more than three foot away. That would be my description of it. And but um, yeah, is inspiring. It's inspiring for sure. I mean, I, you know, I'm working on an album right now in the middle of this project, so I'm I'm constantly going home at night and working on mixes and trying to get records right. And and I'll, I'll as soon as I finish wrap wrap this and and get about a week of sleep, <laughs> I'll be right back in the studio finishing up the record. But but yeah, I mean, I've I've written a lot of songs and certainly a lot of pieces of songs throughout this whole process because every day you walk on set and every day something happens and every day when you watch a scene and inspire, you know, if you're a musician, you can't help but be inspired by it and you can't help but think of phrases or think of a, 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 a poem or something like that, that you can put to music. So yeah, it's, it's been very inspiring to me. And it's been inspiring to me in a lot of ways. It's been inspiring to me because of the material, because of the elements that we're shooting in, because of the scenery but also because of the actors who are around us. So th this is very much an ensemble show and they're just beautiful, incredibly talented people that we get to work with on this and we've all become a family. And so that inspires me in a lot of ways to write music. Great, thank you. Thank you. And Tim, why was now the right time to do a series? I'm sure you've been offered them before and I'm sure you've had many opportunities to do other things, but why now? Yeah, you know, I don't think now is even the question, I think it was the material. I think I, you're right. I've been offered series. I've, I've, I've read for series. I've optioned books and turned them into series and got offered deals for them. 
and they didn't just didn't material just never turned out the way I wanted it to turn out. And it wasn't about money or anything like that because it, you know, that's that's not even doesn't compare to what my music career is. So it's not about any of that. It's all about the material. And as an artist, and certainly someone who wants to challenge themselves and get better at everything that they do, when you're presented with this kind of material and the opportunity to do this kind of material, work with somebody like Taylor Sheridan, work with somebody like Sam Elliott, and to be able to do it after 30-something years in this business and 25 years of marriage, to be able to do something this epic and this big of a deal with your wife. I mean, it just... It was just one of those things that it wasn't about now. It was about the opportunity and the material. Good. I'm glad you took it. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> Faith, how does this mother-daughter relationship remind you of your own mother-daughter relationships? Oh, what a great uh, question. Oh, my my relationship. Oh, okay. First, oh, that is a great question. Um, how does it mirror? Well, uh, first of all, we have adopted Isabel, yeah, and and her parents because we love them so much. <laughs> yeah, yeah I better stressed. ask their permission first. <laughs> um, <clears throat> well, our daughters—we have three daughters—and they're all very, very different. Their personalities are incredibly different. Uh, and uh, spirited, um, we—they all have little. There's essence, the nuances from um, Isabel or, or Elsa's character that. Uh, all three of our girls have it, you know, in some way or the other. Um, I, I wish, honestly, that they had the opportunity to experience life the way um, Elsa's character did in the wide open space, crossing the country, and I mean parts of it, for uh, not all of it, but uh, parts of it, just the freedom and the. Um, exploration because uh elsa you know was just wow one of the greatest um honestly characters i've ever read personally uh in a script and and isabel just absolutely is phenomenal in this show and just completely she is it was written for her she is she you are her uh, well of course you know that you are Isabel and you are Elsa. And I do need more coffee. Yeah. <laughs> Did that answer your question or? It worked. It worked. Okay, it worked. <laughs> oh my God. For 30 years, that's the best comeback I've ever heard yeah. in my life. Oh, that's great. That's I will, great. I, everyone in this room, I, I will never be able to live that down. Thank exactly. you. <laughs> it worked. <laughs> All right, that is the end of the episode. We are taking a few weeks off for the holidays, but expect us to be back in action and better than ever in the coming year with an episode all about what we're looking forward to in 2022. So make sure that you're subscribed. You can check the show notes for links to where you can stream the movies that we talked about, discover older episodes, and find ways to contact Bruce, Jared, and myself as well if you want. The show is produced by myself, Bruce, and Jared, and I'm the one who records and edits it. We hope that you've enjoyed the show and are taking very good care of yourselves out there. As always, thank you so much for listening.